Hi everybody, Duncan here. This is the last podcast of the year and normally I'd be pretty excited about Christmas. You know, I've just finished wrapping some presents. Uh, the Christmas tree is up and looking lovely. But, oh dear, this Christmas looks grim and we're just waiting for one of our kids or one of us to get sick and it's just not a happy place to be. But fingers crossed we'll get through the festive season and uh, we'll see our family and it'll be okay. Um, not looking good right now, I have to say. Anyway, anyway, I'll, I have no idea whether I'll conjure up some optimism by the end of this podcast, but uh, let's at least talk you through the post from the last week. So links I liked, um, that was a really interesting sort of piece from Branko Milanovic, who is always interesting, let's be fair. Um, looking at the, trying to understand why people would share, why countries and governments would share vaccines between the poor and the rich. And his conclusion is, actually pretty simple. Unless we decentralise production of vaccines, the gap will remain and no amount of surplus in rich countries will lead them rationally to share vaccines with the poor. So he's an economist and he thinks very much in terms of what is what is yeah, what makes sense for a government with vaccines. And right now what makes sense for, for uh, governments is sadly to hoard them in case there's another outbreak, in case they need boosters. And governments that don't do that get punished politically. So he's saying essentially you have to localise production, that that's the only way to break that chain. And that you know, echoes, I think, a lot of what we've been talking about in the aid industry recently. And um, USAID, another link on that on that blog was from the new USAID chief, Samantha Power. I wish I was called something Power. Anyway, um, Samantha Power, who's talking about USAID's new push for localisation. And I think there's a real question about localisation can be pushed from above. But until some way is found of localising in aid, I don't think power is ever going to get down to you know, the, where you want it on the ground. Um, my personal feeling is that until organisations start to raise money locally and not rely on aid, there's always going to be that issue of you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And I don't think any amount of good intentions, good intentions can weaken that link. But as soon as there's a crisis um, or a, you know, a, a problem, then yeah scandal or whatever then power will reassert itself as long as that you know imbalance of money and resources exists so i think you've got to de you've got to localize fundraising as well as you know um, programs and then you might get somewhere anyway there are lots of other posts lots of other links on links i liked it's it's one of the fun you know things i do on the blog Second post was by Charlotte Mormon Sandy Oliver, and it's called Engaging with Evidence and Uncertainty, Choosing Where to Start. There are two powerful trends playing out in the development and humanitarian world. The push to make better use of research evidence to produce viable policy options and the localization agenda. We're back to localization. The two are sometimes treated as mutually exclusive. I mistrust any decision made without reference to critically appraised evidence versus Ah, but my operating context is so unique that only knowledge held within the boundaries of this village has any applicability for my decisions. Which I would characterise as economist versus anthropologist, but that's probably unfair. The truth, is, the truth is, whatever we are most comfortable with, we should probably all be doing a bit more of the other. There are very few contexts where we can't apply some form of generalisable evidence, systematic review, meta-analysis, etc. And even fewer where we can't learn with them and from those people closest to the problem about how our attempts to solve, the, solve, solve it might be improved. 
So where do we start in getting this balance right? Over the last two years, a group of academics, evaluators, and development and humanitarian practitioners have developed a toolkit that helps to identify the most appropriate mix of methods for engaging stakeholders with evidence in any intervention. It all starts with pushing past our own prejudices. And to do this, we first have to recognize them as such. The matrix works by helping us to situate decision-making in relation to, and it's a classic two by two, on one axis, the availability of generalizable evidence, and on the other, understanding among stakeholders of the operational context. I'll say that again, understanding among stakeholders of the operational context. So what you do when you get these two by twos is you get four quadrants. It's a very sort of, yeah, it's a very uh, quick and dirty way of, of thinking, what do you do in different situations? And you look at whether the problem is in one quadrant or the other, and then think about um, uh, what you do about it. So they argue that doing this, locating things in one of these four quadrants, can reveal deep held and often ill-informed preferences for particular forms of evidence. It also goes some way towards explaining why these preferences might be holding us back and how we might get a better balance. To illustrate this, we've populated the matrix using two real-world examples related to clean cook stoves and child nutrition. So I'll just give you a clean cook stoves one. So clean cook stoves, um, on the top right, so this is when, some, when, when you're in a situation where there is general, when there is knowledge available, generalizable knowledge available, and a shared understanding of, of, of context, evidence from engineering and physiology convinced a small number of practitioners, policymakers, donors, academics, and business networks that cooking indoors with solid fuel pollutes the air, harms the lungs, and increases mortality. Working with the World Health Organization, this group recommended promoting the use of better stoves with cleaner fuels. But turns out there wasn't a shared understanding of context. So in the bottom right, available knowledge but uncertain understanding of context, despite promotion of evidence linking solid fuels to poor health, campaigns did not result in widespread adoption of clean cook stoves. So WHO brought together research and policy experts from within health, engineering, air pollution and economics to share what they knew and develop guidance to influence cook stove markets, communities and homes. One radical and effective solution to this problem saw engineers and anthropologists working with household cooks to redesign, test and set standards for stoves that would appeal to home cooks. So basically they had this great idea, they just forgot to talk to the cooks and not surprisingly the cooks found that the cook stoves weren't, weren't very good for them, and so they didn't adopt them. So what? For those of us that prize the rigors of the generalizable evidence base, sometimes above all else, this, this example acts as an important caution. The linear model for encouraging the uptake of such evidence is all well and good when the context is well understood, but bring uncertainty into the picture, which let's be honest, applies to most development interventions, and this model quickly breaks down. By contrast, the relational model in which we encourage dialogue, for example, with cooks, is more effective. Very nice. Um, and then they conclude working, th I, I won't give you the other one on um, uh, child nutrition, but that's also really interesting. Where to turn when engaging with evidence, working through the two by two in relation to your own work on any particular project, you'll probably find you don't fit neatly into one square. This is always the case with these two by twos but there will likely be one or two that align more closely with your situation than the others. And you might be surprised at which. 
Just getting to this stage can help build your trust in the relevance of different forms of evidence, while also helping you to plan which models for engaging stakeholders with evidence make most sense. Now you know which models might, might work best, our toolkit can help you locate appropriate methods for engaging stakeholders with evidence. It's intentionally live and we are always searching for more methods to add, so do get in touch. So I think that's a really nice practical uh, you know, uh, toolkit. People in comments really like the case studies, so I think, you know, good piece of work there. Um, <clears throat> Third post of the week was the World Inequality Report 2022, which is this kind of monster number crunch by a hundred researchers who uh, who work over four years all over the globe, um, and then bring it all together once every four years. And this is uh, this is a really good piece of work. Um, there's a lot of graphs if you're into graphs, um, and I'll pull out some of the, the things that, that that struck me. All. Uh, numbers, uh, all dollars are in purchasing power parity, which me which allows you to uh, compare dollar values between countries. Right. So first of all, the report covers wealth as well as income. These are the two things that are most researched in inequality. I mean, you obviously you can have inequality of anything, um, uh, but these are the two things that get a lot of uh, attention. Uh, an average adult individual in the whole world earns twenty three thousand uh, dollars and three hundred eighty twenty three thousand three hundred eighty dollars per year in 2021 and owns, so not earns, but owns about $100,000. But these averages mark wide disparities both between and within countries. The richest 10% of the global population currently takes 52% of global income, while the poorest half of the population, like half the world's people, earns 8% of it. I'll, I won't give you too much of a blizzard of numbers, but they're all in there. Second point. Global wealth inequalities are even more pronounced than income inequalities. The poorest half of the global population barely earns any wealth at all, possessing just 2% of the total. In contrast, the richest 10% of the global population owns 76% of all wealth. So we're talking about poorest half having an average of $4,100, top 10% having an average of $770,000. Next point. Latin America loses the top slot on regional inequality, which as a Latin Americanist, I'm quite glad to hear. The new most unequal region is MENA, Middle East and North Africa. And Europe has the lowest inequality levels. Inequality varies significantly between Europe and the most unequal and, and MENA. In Europe, the top 10% income share is around 36%, whereas in MENA, it reaches 58%. Next point. More than average wealth and income, politics and history explain variations between countries because what you find is that national average income levels are very poor predictors of, in of inequality. So they're saying just because you're a high income country doesn't mean you're going to be more or less unequal. So you have countries which are very unequal, such as the US, while others which are quite equal, like Sweden. And the same is true in low and middle income countries. Some are very, very unequal, like Brazil and India. Um, and some of relatively low levels, like Malaysia and Uruguay. So that comes down to the politics and history. Not, it's not sort of predestined. So it is a question of choice to some extent. Next point. Global inequalities are close to early 20th century levels at the peak of Western imperialism. Economic decolonization has barely started. That's my words, not theirs. And they showed that, that yeah, uh, that... that, that it, all the efforts to redistribute income have 
barely made a dent. They may they maybe stopped it getting worse. Uh, very hard to prove that, but they have not significantly brought it down. The share of income presently captured by the poorest half of the world's people is about half what it was in 1820, before the great divergence between Western countries and their colonies. In other words, there is still a long way to go to undo the global economic inequalities inherited from the very unequal organisation of world production between the mid-19th and the mid-20th centuries. Next point. The, this is my words again. The extremely wealthy have had a fantastic 25 years and a spectacular pandemic. So they do this, uh, they do a, a new version of the elephant graph, which is a dis distribution which Branko Milanovic came up with, looking at who gained the most um, from uh, looking at the whole global distribution. Um, and what but this is on the average annual wealth growth rate. And what they find is that there is a, you know, a, a, a lump in the middle, which were the um, sort of the, the rising um, emerging markets, which is what Branko found. A bit of a dip, which is where the middle classes in Europe and North America uh, lost out. And this is from 1995 to 2021. So this is the last 25 years. And then this extraordinary spike for the top, especially the top 1%, um, uh, uh, but also you know, subsets within that. The rise in private wealth has been unequal within countries and at the world level. Global multimillionaires have captured a disproportionate share of global wealth growth over the past several decades. The top 1% took 38% of all additional wealth accumulated since the mid-90s, whereas the bottom 50%, half the world's people, captured just 2% of that additional wealth. So this is barely even trickle-down. This inequality stems from serious inequality in growth rates, between the top and bottom segments. The wealth of the richest individuals on earth has grown at 6 to 9% per year since 1995. And, the the, and since then, the share of global wealth possessed by billionaires has risen from 1% to over 3%. And this was exacerbated during the COVID pandemic. In fact, 2020, the, the first year of the pandemic, who knows when the last year will be, marked the steepest increase in global billionaires' share of wealth on record. Steepest increase. in So billionaires have got richer faster in the middle of the pandemic than ever before. This is not good stuff. Conclusion. Addressing the challenges of the 21st century is not feasible without significant redistribution of income and wealth inequalities. The rise of modern welfare states in the 20th century which was associated with tremendous progress in health, education and opportunities for all, was linked to the rise of steep progressive taxation rates. This played a critical role in order to ensure the social and political acceptability of increased taxation and socialisation of wealth. A similar evolution will be necessary in order to address the challenges of the 21st century. Recent developments in international taxation show that progress towards fairer economic policies is indeed possible at the global level as well as within countries. Inequality is always a political choice and learning from policies implemented in other countries or at other points of time is critical to design fairer development pathways. So there's a really big point in there which is, you know, we may have gone as far as we can go in terms of national taxation because people got so good at avoiding it, but, you know, using tax havens and all the rest of it. And they are optimistic that we can crack the next nut, which is some form of global international taxation, 
which will you know, respond to the globalization of trade and the globalization of how rich people manage their finances. And that's the next frontier. And I think that's very interesting. I'm, 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 yeah, I've been following the Robin Hood tax or the, the, the Tobin tax, the financial transactions tax with interest because that's one of the first of these. Hasn't got very far yet, but you know it may still be a precursor of something that is going to come. So important. I think there's some really interesting sort of wider lessons there. And then the final post of the week is uh, a retrospective, really. Um, so at the LSE, one of the jobs I have is uh, working with James Putzel. Uh, 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 we invite guest lecturers to come from outside the LSE, from all over the world now, because we've been online since the pandemic. Um, and we've got a series which we call Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice. And it's just huge fun. It's Friday afternoon, so some people sort of say, oh, do we have to? You know, and I think there's a bit of Zoom fatigue. Uh, people have been online too long, too often. But we've had decent numbers this, this term and we've had some great talks. So uh, I just uh, linked to these. And each talk we then put up as a YouTube video and as a podcast. That's new this year. So there's really, and, and blogs written by some of the students attending the talk. So it's, a, it's, a, it's multimedia extravaganza. And some of the talks have been absolutely brilliant. So uh, I just ordered them a bit by topic. So we had two really good ones on inequality. My friend Harjun Chang on the political economy of Parasite, the movie. Really interesting. And the discussion there was uh, Francisco Ferreira, ex-World Bank, now at the LSE Inequalities Institute. And there was Gabriel Palma on why the rich stay rich no matter what. And the discussion there was Branko Milanovic, he of the elephant graph. On aid, we had Claire Short, who is just always brilliant, on what's wrong with aid. And her discussion was James Putzel, my co-organiser. He jumped the fence there. And we also had Mushtaq Khan on making anti-corruption effective, a new approach. And discussing there was Uche Igwe. Um, Mushtaq's one of the best thinkers about anti-corruption work and why it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. So if you're interested in anti-corruption, I recommend that. On COVID, we had the uh, celebrated Indian economist Jayati Ghosh, on access to vaccines and the limiting role of uh, intellectual property rights and pharma monopolies, very much in the news at the moment. There's a fantastic piece on the FT investigation into Pfizer, which had me frothing at the mouth at how distorted and wicked the world is. So do look that up if you can. Um, I can't remember the name of the authors. One was David Pilling, but look up Pfizer, big read, and you should get it. And it's open access. The discussant for Jayati was Kevin Watkins, formerly of Save the Children Fund, now a professor in practice like me at the LSE. Only he doesn't get paid and he doesn't do much. Sorry, Kevin. Um, civil society uh, topic, we had Ingrid Trinat, who gave a great talk on COVID-19 corporatization and closing space, the triple threat to civil society in India. And we're hoping she'll turn that into a working paper. And the discussion there was David Lewis from the LSE. We also had Tehas Clark and Musharraf Hussein on the International Day or for people's, uh, Persons with Disabilities on disability, development, rights and inclusion. On conflict, we of course covered Afghanistan. We had the implosion of the Afghan state. What next for women and the nation? And we had a panel with Antonio Giustosi, sorry, Dennis Candiotti, Graham Smith, Pashtana Durrani and Osala Nemat. And then finally on food, we had paradigm shifts in food systems, Agnes Kalibata discussing with Ian Schoons. So if, you, if you're if you running away from the family or just generally want to um, listen to some podcasts or watch some videos over the holidays, 
I recommend some of those. They're really good. And we've got a whole great bunch next year. We're kicking off on the 21st of January with a sort of slightly more measured review of what was all that fuss about Glasgow and the COP26 with Tasneep, Eop and Tim Gore. And then we've got Irungu Houghton on human rights and a bunch of other speakers. So this is one of the fun bits of the job, just bringing in these really good people from all over the world um, uh, and uh, unleashing them on both on LSE students and anyone who wants to watch on YouTube. So that's about as optimistic as I can get. Have a fantastic break. I'll be back in the new year um, and uh, see you then. Or rather, he, you'll hear me then anyway. All right. Bye.